0: Hello and welcome to the Embassy of Ireland to Canada podcast series. In this podcast, we look at a conversation between Ambassador Eamon McKee and Gillian Van Turnout, former senator and current genealogist and children's rights advocate. We hope that you enjoy. Well, listen, welcome, everybody, to uh, this conversation with Gillian Van Turnout. Uh, Delighted to have you here, Gillian, for your second time, Um, and we're going to explore emigrant roots. Um, the nature of emigration and how you can retrace through documents and stories um, the outward journeys of Irish immigrants. So you can find where 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 you came from with with a bit of look and a bit of expertise. But uh, there are many sides to Gillian and uh, Gillian, you were you were senator for a while. How did that happen? And and, uh, did you enjoy it?
1: Uh, yeah absolutely uh, I, I've had quite an eclectic career uh, if I was doing a job interview here Eamon I might, I might be struggling to, to bring you through my career I started in the private sector Uh I was, I've always been very involved with the Girl Guides through that uh, I uh, went to some meetings in Brussels uh, through that got appointed um, <clears throat> as Secretary General of, of a youth platform uh, of international youth organizations and uh, and that brought me to co-found the European Youth Forum, uh, which was a great period of my life to, to do all of that. came back to Ireland, back to the private sector, <clears throat> then took a job uh, with the Children's Rights Alliance, uh, which is an NGO in Ireland, uh, which brings together over a hundred and plus now organizations working on children's rights. And it was when I was in that role, uh, I was also a member of an EU advisory body. And for that, I was in China. And I got the phone call from Ben Taoiseach and the Kenny to ask me would I be a member of, of the Senate or upper house uh, to highlight children's rights uh, and ha- how we can further children's rights in Ireland because that was 2011 at that time mm. we'd uncovered a lot of our own history you know I'm I can see uh, the echoes here in in Canada obviously it's a very different story but actually the parallels are quite similar some of the yeah. things that, that we've revealed so part of my appointment was was on children's rights. And I had a magnificent five years. I enjoyed every minute of it. It was an honor uh, to be in the upper house, uh, to be one of only a thousand Irish people, probably in history who've served in that way. Uh, but I knew that would come to an end as well, because uh, it, what did they say? All political careers end in failure. And I, well, didn't, yeah, was... I didn't want to live up to that. So <laughs> I decided to, uh, honorably exit at the end of my time and I set up my own business doing consultancy on governance but also a business on genealogy because I'm fascinated with the Irish story and and how we've influenced around the world so that's
0: yeah.
1: kind of my my. I've had lots of different careers but I, they've all come together uh, so and that's what brings me here.
0: Well before, I don't want to gloss over your, uh, yeah. the, the, your political career without saying um, about your success in terms of uh, corporal punishment and I sometimes age myself uh, when I describe getting whacked in school when I was a kid uh, across the hand and uh, younger listeners, uh, not even, well, even older listeners are askance that we used to be children in school. So that was a, a real achievement of your time in the Senate.
1: Uh, yeah. And I like it was a real proud achievement of mine because when I suggested that I would bring it forward. I was told not now we're not ready yet or or yes we agree with you and maybe it's not really happening but if we open up this we'll somehow open up a pandora's box and and there'll be difficulties in ireland and i decided because of my privileged position of being in the senate that i had nothing to lose by raising mm-hmm. it and i think eamon and, and this is absolutely true i knew even if i was the only person because i didn't know how my colleagues felt at the time on the issue even if i was the only person at least a child in ireland would know that an adult said you should not be hit so i yeah. would stand up and at least they would know that i have to impress my colleagues not a single person voted against it and yeah. uh, even though everybody warned me to wait the time's not right i was lucky uh, by by the time we got got it through the government joined me in putting down the amendment uh, and we achieved a ban and we were the while we were the 47th country in the world and uh, we were only the second common law country yeah. Uh, and I've since worked with Scotland and Wales, who brought in a similar change. And this week, I hope now in Canada also to be there's a private members' bill to be tabled, uh, which is super to see uh, yeah. because we we need to show the rest of the world that hitting children is wrong, and all the evidence shows us. But yeah. you know, I, I it's a really proud achievement. And one thing I say to legislators is, the moment I did it, everyone said, "Why didn't we do this?" I year? Need to, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. what's the problem so sometimes one person needs to stand up and i was privileged to be that person
0: yeah no well done it was a great achievement then genealogy how, where did that start i mean because we all in a way fantasize about uh doing genealogy and then we give up after we've looked at a few photographs and the birth cert and say oh my god and then we put it aside and say, i must do that again but you've, you've you've persisted um in the search how did it how did it all begin
1: well, it all began by uh, when we were struggling, my two older brothers and myself decided what well, we're trying to think of parents' wedding anniversary, a significant wedding anniversary, it was over 20 years ago, what will we get them? And we came up with this idea to give them a family history course in UCD at the time uh, with John Grenham, who's still very active in genealogy. And so we thought this was a great idea, they could go off, they were coming close to retirement, they could go off and do this course, So they go off and do the course and they come home with homework and who did they get to do the homework with them is their dutiful daughter. So I started doing this and I started getting more and more interested in it and bringing it into the story. And I think what really was the catalyst for me was as we got more involved, I found out about a cousin, an elderly cousin, a little bit distance from my dad, but knew my dad hmm. from being a child. Um, And she was in her early eighties at that time. And I made con- contact with her and she really had the family story. And where was she based? She was- manchester manchester yeah so she was based in manchester and i remember even the first time i decided i had written to her a few times so she's real old school miss marple would be the best descriptor i could give <laughs> of her uh, She's real old school so i wrote to her a few times and i said do you know i think i'd like to visit her because i feel that there's something we have in common let's go and visit her um my mum came with me and uh some people said oh don't bring her on you you know this whole
0: yeah
1: i'm going to manchester what's like if she turns out to be not the nice person she turns out to be the most gorgeous person and uh, she became like a grandmother to me uh margaret Donahue. and uh she just had so many great stories and she died a few years ago and i still miss my long conversations about the family and she loved the fact that she could nearly set me on a mission
0: to i could
1: go off and find this out and do this. And she had some brilliant artifacts. Uh, one of the things she had was, uh, from a great aunt of mine, a set of postcards. Oh, my wow. great aunt had been um, in UCD uh, during uh, 1916. So oh, t- wow. t- Thomas Macdonald tried to tell my great aunt to go home to County Clare, uh, during, you know, about two weeks yeah. before, she said, you should go home for Easter. And my great aunt said, no, if I go home to the farm, they'll only get me working on the farm. I need to study. And he's going, no, no, you should go home. A week later he said he'd organized a a, a car for her to go home no no i'll stay in dublin and so she's memoirs where she's written about being in dublin it was all calm on easter monday we have this idea of the rising and all yeah you know she went down to o'connell street two dead horses not much happening you know, so all of this, but she had postcards. That's so we donated them to the National Library, uh because, you know, my, my uh, cousin didn't want anybody to profit from them. Uh, so I feel really proud that because of that interest, I've been able to connect and give those cards into our national collection.
0: Yeah, no, it's fantastic, because you often find in families that there's one person that has kind of developed and, and retrieved the stories and if you can find those you're kind of on your way you know but it's also you don't have to go back far before you you find yourself as you describe it right really in in living Irish history so it, it it's very very close to us you know
1: close and, and we don't realize and 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 we have all the different sides of, of history you know because I think yeah. sometimes we'll all hold on to one narrative and, and in recent years I'm hoping with our commemorations, that we realize there's layers and that we don't have one narrative to our history and that it's very complicated and and that's okay. And we need to understand it. And and we didn't live at that time, so we don't know what choices we would have made. Yeah, Uh,
0: Yeah.
1: we can just interpret, you know?
0: Yeah, it's very funny you use that phrase, because when I talk to the historians of the Irish here, when we're putting together the 50 Irish Lives Project, that's our kind of motto. It's complicated. And don't don't uncomplicate it, just accept it. Um, And I think in a way, the Irish story in Canada is probably even is probably the most complicated in a way. And I know you've been looking at that. Can you kind of summarize uh, the the, the kind of narrative phases of Irish immigration? Just just briefly, so we have a a sense of what 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 has happened and what characterizes the Irish profile in Canada?
1: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And and I think there's only more and more sources coming to, to light. And I think the work you're doing on the 50 Irish Lives is phenomenal. And, and I'm looking forward to reading more and, and seeing who gets selected. Uh, but like, you know, if we, if we go back to the 16th century, you have Irish leaving Ireland to go to France. And then they go from France to oh. New France to Quebec and, and are part of that. So we, we have them coming this circuitous route. Then we have obviously the story of Newfoundland, which, which probably were more aware of, and the fishing and people mm. going over for a season at first, you know, a few seasons because it was good trade. We have the timber trade, so the timber coming to Europe, and then there's empty ships going back. So we do see particularly a rise from about 1815 onwards. Uh, I, I suppose, you know, end of Nep- uh, Napoleonic Wars. England is in a severe e- economic recession. It was
0: around 1815
1: ish. 1815 ish. So, you know, you can see this. There's beginning to be a move mainly from Ulster, mainly Protestants. And um, some probably have only come from Scotland in the last previous hundred years before that or right. around. Yeah. So they're looking for a better life. So we're seeing quite a lot of those being attracted in. Uh, but from the 1830s on in Canada, there's lots of different schemes. And mm. uh, so we'll see Irish from all different coming to look, they've a better life. You know, there's ads for get a hundred acres, get a thousand acres. Now, when you think in Ireland that most oh, people God. came from a townland that was just so small. Yeah. And they were small tenant farmers. So actually we see a huge number coming before the famine. And I think sometimes in Irish genealogy, everybody thinks, you know, oh, if I'm in Canada or the US or Australia, they must have come because of the famine. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah I mean, are, what strikes me about that is, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's you're, you're talking certainly up to the 1830s about two to one Protestants. So you've Protestants leaving yeah. Ireland. But then you've also got aristocracy. You know, you've yeah. got people like Guy Carlton and uh, Richard Bulkley or, or, or yeah. in in Nova Scotia, the, the, the father of the province. Uh, you've got Fitzgibbon, you've got these kind of Irish Irish families because they're there for generations, but they're aristocrats, they're governors, they're the imperial Irish mixed in with then the Protestant and then of course, Catholics start to come in, well, really in, yeah. into Ottawa or well, by town to build a canal. Yeah. So the settlement patterns are, are actually quite different from what, as you say, what we expect. I mean, I think we're all measuring it against the United States you know, post-famine immigration and so on. But the Irish in Canada are really they're pre-famine. Oh, the,
1: the, mainly pre-famine. And I, I would say you probably see some of those post famine are coming because they've links here or they've connected yeah. here or there's you know I mean and and every family has its own story. But if you look at the pre-famine, even from the 1830s onwards, like quite a significant number of females, because I'm always very interested in looking at the female mm. lines, because we, we 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 forget those lines at times. and and over half of them are are females who are coming and a third of those are are single females because they can get a job here yeah and they have a livelihood here so each each person has that story but if we look at the building like ontario how many irish there were like phenomenal the numbers of irish you know that that you'd hear the accent from home so you travel all of this way over to here and you're condition. back with Irish in, in home territory. Uh, and also, you know, for Quebec, the welcoming of Catholics. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming from a country where, being Catholic, you had been oppressed for quite some time. So, and as you say about the, the Protestants, so you've all these different mix of Irish coming mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to find that new start, that new life uh, in, in this very new land, as far as Europeans are concerned, uh, coming.
0: yeah. <laughs> You know, you had some. You showed me some uh, fascinating statistics on the kind of distribution of the Irish in Canada. Now, clearly, they're focused in Quebec, but mainly then in Toronto. Yes. And of course, we have to remember Canada only stretched as far as what they called Upper Canada. So, yes. but but over the generations, then, can you give us a rough idea of like the the kind of the the kind of population centers of those who claim Irish ancestry across Canada? We know top of the league is Ontario. What happened, who's who's next as it were?
1: Yeah, well La- like- The
0: Atlantic, sta- Adla- Atlantic problem. Yeah, yeah you,
1: you have like uh, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, as you say, like looking, even in 2016, 20% of people said in Nova Scotia, they had Irish uh, ancestry, and this is Statistics Canada, this is the yeah. Irish trying to pump. And yeah. this is people, uh, all of these statistics, they, they have a, a, to say that they're actually understated. Right. Because it's what people predominantly see themselves on. So, and, and most people we know, families will have married different families. So, for example, in Quebec, uh, they'll say that while it's actually only reported to be 6%, uh, historians reckon it's 40 to 60%. Yeah. If you go down one line of a family branch, you are going to find Irish there. Mm-hmm. And I think in America, there was a celebration of being Irish. Uh, in Canada, we didn't see this true. You know, the nineteenth century, we didn't see this celebration of being Irish. So many people actually, maybe under layers of their family history, are Irish and don't really know it. Right. Uh, that's, yeah. And, and don't understand where their family came from uh, in in a certain line of their family. And I think the work that you're doing and and the embassy are doing to help people discover and understand. Because I've met different Canadians who have gone. This is great to know. I'm Irish. I never realized I yeah. had roots, but I always had an affinity. I always felt welcome. Uh, so for me, it's it's just fascinating how different countries understood Irishness and what yeah
0: does mean. yeah it's a very good point because I you know to survive in Canada to prosper you know you had to fit in in a way so you should be Anglican Protestant loyal um imperial in a way you know and you can see that even here locally we had john egan come in our born in connemara 1811 comes penniless to the ottawa valley and then through charm and and organization and leadership becomes one of the wealthiest lumber barons but at some early point he becomes an anglican to kind of more or less fit in and he becomes a a a gentleman um a, a politician a wonderful figure, um, but he would probably be emblematic. So, as you say, the Irish in Canada kind of sublimated, it in a way that they celebrated in, in in the United States, they sublimated it here. And you're absolutely right. You kind of find when you when you talk to Canadians here and you talk about Ireland, uh, they kind of come out of their shell. So it's yeah. almost as if we're at a moment where uh, the Irish Canadians are just are are kind of coming out into not quite into the light, but you know what I mean, yeah. kind of coming out from underneath. All of the assumptions about being in a kind of pro-British member of the Commonwealth and all that kind of stuff. So it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting process.
1: Yeah. And I think from our own side, as as Irish, we're coming through a process of we've gone through, you know, a decade of commemorations and understanding our own history and understanding that history is layered and that there isn't one history to any of us. We all have these layers of history. And I think that's part of it, is that perhaps we we also portrayed uh, to be Irish, this is what it means, and this yeah. is Irish. Um, whereas, in fact, as we know, any anybody who, who enjoys history knows there's a lot of differences and there's a lot of contradictions in each of our histories. Yes. So, you know, yeah. people might say, well, my family, where I, I can tell you for me, Eamon, is I have a family. Uh, you know a great grandfather whose whose house was burnt down by the black and tans. Yeah. Me on the other side, I have a great grandfather who was in the RIC. Yeah. So wh- which narrative do I choose about my family history?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I no, do- I, yeah, yeah, it's a very good point because I think the paradigm shift in 1916 meant that the boxes that you could tick to be Irish were suddenly reduced to, you know, you were there in 1916, you were you were Gaelic speaking Catholic Irish and so on and all the other varieties were lost. And now we're kind of recovering it in a way, which uh, for Ireland, in both Ireland and Canada, I think it's a similar process of uncovering the, the, the kind of the many layers, as you say, of, of the Irish experience and, and the Irish perspectives, you know, that because you were uh, an imperialist didn't mean that you weren't Irish because you'd be, you know, I mean, by any measure, you know, but you have family uh, ancestry in Canada.
1: I do. Uh, There there was a great family story. uh, I have a third great uncle uh, that I know definitely. uh, There was always this story, this memoirs of this great aunt said that he had sold all uh, the produce and he'd even sold the cart and went off to Australia. And that was the story. So I did, as a good genealogist, I went through records in Australia, I went to Tasmania, I went to New Zealand, no sign of Michael Hassett. And he was very elusive and um, and i was, you know went back over the notes and there was a mention that he went to pert and i was like oh pert there's more than one pert uh, in, in the world perhaps you're, looking the to the, the,
0: you're looking at the wrong place
1: yeah perhaps the family story isn't quite as and we know that when stories pass down through generations i often uh, when i'm working with clients will say just tell me what you know but even tell me the stories because there's always a truth Yeah, where we think the truth is, it's
0: Um, always a secret too, Gillian, in an Irish family. They don't want you to find out.
1: Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, you know, Uh, your aunt uh, is
0: actually your mother. You know that kind of thing.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. I've uncovered some secrets, but I do know there was about ten landlords in Ireland who did a lot of assisted passages to to Canada from 1826 onwards. So because. At this time and i don't think we're we're fully aware in ireland our, our population was just going up like the growth really? of the population in ireland was phenomenal actually again like in europe the population was going up but ireland was just you know taking off, off. Charts, uh, taking off so landlords obviously wanted to increase the size of land and the more people you have on land like it was hugely uh, populated in ireland so they encouraged them to take assisted passage uh, to Canada uh, under different schemes And the, the the government of Canada at the time, uh, the governor general had it. So when, different...
0: when did that start, Gillian? In kind of...
1: 1826, we saw about 12,000. As early 000, as that. Interesting. As early as that. Between the famine years, it was over 20,000, and then from about 1851 onwards, they had about 14,000, so like right. uh, up to 1870. So there was quite, quite a number of assisted passages.
0: So that means um, the assisted is basically. I'll, I'll I'll pay you to get on a boat.
1: I'll pay you to get on a boat, and I'll pay your boat fare. Some landlords would have organised for land to be here in Canada when they got here. Others right. left them high and dry, or to their, you their know, own devices. Um, yeah, or something. But we we've got rid of you. Uh, yeah. So, depended. There, there was different, uh, but look, at least they were paying for them to, to move. And I found my elusive Michael Hassett amongst those, uh, and he went and he lived in Perth in Ontario. Oh, there you go. Uh, and there he goes. So, the story was kind of right. Yeah. Uh, he died in 1898 with his family, uh, you know, living there. So, I've, I've, I'm hoping to sometime when I find time to really go forward and see whether there's any living people still here. But There is a great satisfaction to understand where did your ancestors go and why did they go? Like his sister ended up in Wisconsin. His brother ended up in New York.
0: And
1: and there was one brother who stayed. Obviously, my direct line, he stayed in County Clare. But, you know, we don't, uh, for me, having done their stories, they would have spoken Irish at the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. They were illiterate, most likely. Uh, so they would have arrived in this land uh, where they're speaking both French and English uh, in many, you know, so they have all of this happening uh the weather uh, and that's why Ontario was so popular because the climate was pretty good for Irish, yeah. they felt at least there was, there was a certain, you know, they, they could adapt to the climate. So, you know, I, How much they had to adapt, how much they had to integrate and and be part of, how much they were judged, because certain categories of Irish who came over were judged as being, you know, they're illiterate, they don't know how, you know, the the Governor General at at one time said, let them work on the roads first, and then we'll see how they get on. So they were there. But actually, they did a lot of the building of the infrastructure that Canada now has, like if we see the new canal, if we see all the pieces, actually, the Irish played such a huge role uh, in that story, but we don't always bring it to the fore. And I have no doubt that my ancestor, he was a labourer when he died, so I'm sure he did you know he did some bricks somewhere and made part sure of
0: it. i mean i when you put it in those terms it really is quite stark that the irish immigrant certainly the catholic irish immigrant experience is very tough they're they're, they're not going they know they can't go back there's nothing to go back to even if they could yes. get a ship and afford it as you say they don't speak the language their only skills are essentially manual labor and they and as you say they do they build the Rio canal the welland canal you know they they get involved in the infrastructure uh, here in the Ottawa Valley, they muscled their way into the uh, the lumber industry, for example. And then John Egan, that I mentioned, he would sell the cleared land at half price if you were Irish. So the, he he was instrumental in getting so many Irish settling in the wow. Ottawa Valley and Pontiac and places like that. But it it's an incredibly tough experience for them, you know. And yes, um, they they made it. Um, of course, those years were nothing compared to uh, eighteen forty seven when. I mean, panic really hits Ireland during the famine, and yeah. we have what a hundred thousand come uh, to Canada. You've done a bit of work on that too.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, the 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 famine. Uh, it, you know, obviously in our own history, we, we we you know we we'll talk about it, but we know that those who came to Canada uh, they came in significant numbers. Uh, we know that, I think, was it over a million uh, died and over a million emigrated. But of yeah. those who came to Ireland, uh, they started off their life on Grosse Eel, which I know you you have visited, like my, myself, and and it is it's very eerie. And you just, you can feel those lives there. You can absolutely. So Grosse Eel was set up in actually 1932, because uh, cholera, our first pandemic, uh, we yeah. now understand about global pandemics much more. Uh, but... Ile was set up as a quarantine station and so many Irish uh went through Grosse Was that 18, that was 18,
0: 1832?
1: 1832, yeah. Ile was established. Uh because of the cholera, which did get to Canada. They they would hoped that by doing this quarantine stations they could stop it, and uh but un, unfortunately it, it didn't stop it coming to, to Canada. Um and, and they set they as I said, they they set it up there, but you know, I think over 5,000 uh, died there. And, That's and right. yeah. you know, yeah. the, the crosses that are there uh, in the grounds, the names that are, are etched.
0: Uh, and yeah. it's, very, it's very evocative. I mean, we had, when we did the commemoration in July, we had, we had people literally in tears. Um, and then of course, there's, there's Irish common graves all along the St. Lawrence uh, and including here, uh, thanks to a local historian, Michael McBain, um, we discovered that, in fact, there's a there's a mass grave of about probably 300 Irish family immigrants here in Ottawa, which was has really has been forgotten about, you know. So um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, of the 100,000, a fifth died, but four fifths made it um, and went on to, to make. Well, many of them, of course, went to the United States, but those who were here integrated and made a, a great contribution to Canada as well. Now, if you're in canada with irish ancestry and you're interested in finding where i mean as a a genealogist what what's the kind of the top what's the top what's the top piece of advice you give people And where do you start
1: well where you start is what you know and what you absolutely know so you know who you are you know who your parents are hopefully Uh, so you you start gathering all the information that you know or, or or the oldest person that you know Talk why you know to your family, to your extended relatives like me, find a relative you never knew existed. You know we, we think we know everything, we don't know everything. Yeah. And be like be like a detective with any documents you have. So try and understand. But also look to history. What was happening okay. at the time? You know So why would somebody have done that? Don't get caught up with the spelling of your surname uh, okay. because this is where sometimes people say no, but it's absolutely spelt that way. Uh, they were, many were illiterate, so they were going by the sound of it, so we, right. we sometimes we have to say out loud the name
0: oh, interesting! In the yeah.
1: to understand what was the name, uh, and the age, uh, ages vary greatly, and not just for women being vain, uh, births weren't so significant, you know, uh, so we, uh, like we see in Ireland in our census records between, we, we only have two uh, sets of census records uh, that have survived, but between 1901 and 1911, there's a great, Jump in ages. We, right. brought, we brought in the pensions act, so just ah, what was happening at the time? Yes,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. They were attentive.
1: They were happy to be older. What I have found is, though, Irish people are phenomenal of knowing where they came from. So I right. rarely found a mistake about the county you came from. That's There's interesting. So that is, I, I'm yet to find a real mistake. As sometimes they're in neighbouring county, but when you look at where they came from, it's on the border. Right. So you can see maybe the border was slightly different so they know where they they came from and townlands uh i think this is something that that is very irish we we have sixty thousand townlands on the island of ireland so if you can get where somebody's townland is it's about usually about half a mile uh, a mile so it's not a big area yeah can and I've you know with clients stood in the middle of a field in Ireland and and they can just feel their ancestor and it is it is you know kind of scary like you feel this feeling but mm-hmm. I felt it myself and I understand it I I don't think it's so try if if there's any sound of a townland or a county hold on to
0: that information that's right because that's and, very specific then if you yeah. if you can well, get hit yeah. the townland is it's a try I mean it's really it. precision yeah. targeting yeah, yeah. and. Now, if, you're in the t- if you know the townland, what yeah. kind of records can you access?
1: So the first thing I'd say, there's lots of free records first. The Irish government right. have been really good about trying to make as many free records available as possible. Unfortunately, there are lots of different websites. And, and right. I, I will post up after this maybe some, some of the top uh, free websites so that people be great. Could, could know it. Uh, but from our national archives, you know, you can get our census records. You can get land records from the 1820s. Uh, so you've you've those and um, IrishGenealogy.ie not to be mixed up with my own uh, Genealogy.ie but IrishGenealogy.ie has a uh, birth, marriage, and death certs from 1864 onwards.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: and they're free. So you right. you know within you know obviously within certain periods, the National Library of Ireland I'd look at. We've the Public Records Office in Northern Ireland, then land records. If you know your townland in 1850s, there was uh, the Griffiths valuation was oh, done. Oh yeah. And that's great because that list, who was there on a townland in in those 1850s period uh, and often you'll see is maybe your ancestor came to Canada, but a sibling will still be at that townland, hopefully, or or, or nearby. The likelihood is somebody will be there. And that's where understanding their place names and understanding uh, who they are. And the most recent one that has come online is called the Virtual Treasury. And it was a project called Beyond uh, 1922, uh, and it, it's what they did was in 1922 in Ireland our records office got burnt at, at the opening uh, uh, of our civil war. Unfortunately, the records office burnt down, and, and, and you should go and see it, it's an amazing story. But this project, uh, Trinity College took the lead, but the Government of Ireland gave funding towards it and what they have done is they've tried to recreate that public records office and they're right. beginning to bring back more and more records and you can go in there now and all of those are free
0: so, so these are these are the the duplicates that were sent to to London basically
1: duplicates sent to London but they've gone to and I know that they've gone to Canadian institutions right. have given records they've gone all around the world getting records great uh, so and it's going to start really building up so going onto that site virtualtreasury.ie uh, it is just, and you could just, I, I you know, we all do this, I type in Hassett, that's, that's, see my, what that's my surname, and I see what happens, and I start seeing different Hassett's around, so it, just go in and have a look, you yeah. know, what you might find about your name, and what I have found when you're doing your family history is people say, no, no, I don't know anything about that, and then I find a record or two, and they go, oh, I no. remember,
0: the this, light goes off in their head, and they go, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." Yeah, that
1: makes sense. I've heard that before. That, that you know, that sounds actually, you know. So, yeah, win and have a look. So, I would advise people: there's lots of subscription sites, and you can go on. Yeah, so, just
0: on that, are subscription sites worth it?
1: I they're worth it if you know what you already want to do, but don't. Okay. I suppose my, my fear fear people going onto subscription sites, and there, there's some brilliant sites and they've fabulous records, and I use them all the time. Is that they give you lots of hints, and so people start attaching information to their family that's not belonging to that person.
0: Oh, okay. So
1: you think, oh well, it's Michael Hassett. It has to be my ancestor. Right. I several Michael Hassets in Australia, and I then was able to work through. Going, that's not my Michael. It's not. Oh, you,
0: so- you really have to be in control of your own research. It's yeah. not a shortcut. No, they're not going to do it for you. You have to be.
1: You have to be in control and that's why you always start with what you know right. and build backwards each step and just triangulate and try and understand well if they were there you know i have seen people that have on their uh, on subscription sites they have family trees where the person got married three times in three different countries uh you know and have had children in each country and you're going <laughs> look just physically couldn't have happened
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: Even even with with airplanes which they wouldn't have had at the time this person couldn't have flown to all these yeah airlines, so it's there's also a, i the other thing
0: that struck me when i saw my great grandfather fill out the form um and for from the census and he scratched out something and said scholar for for my for my grandfather he's he a scholar this was a great thing so there's a real thrill in seeing the handwriting uh, and seeing the names all, and, and, so, and, and even in the official documents, this beautiful handwriting, and then you have, you know, X, and then you have a woman, and spinster, or whatever written beside, and, you know, and, and in the census as well, because like, he was from Mount Pleasant in Dublin, there's a record of um, the animals that were kept in yes. the middle of Dublin, and they all have chickens and sheep and pigs in the background. And there's obviously horses yeah. and dogs. They say, what? It must have been a cacophony in, in the middle of Dublin because they're all, you know, and and the other thing that struck me was so many of them are packed into these tiny houses Yeah. and they're renting a room out to somebody. And there's the widow there with her 19 year old son and he, she's living in one bedroom. Yeah. And it just, it's a whole portrait of, of a different, a completely different way of life, you know?
1: And that's the way to look at these records is like, like, you know, you have the 1901 and 1911 census online. The 1911 is in the person's own handwriting. Yeah. But there's also forms behind it that you see how many rooms that they have in the house. In how the many house,
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was looking at. Yeah. House.
1: Yeah. And it's so start and, and that building up that picture and trying to understand their life, go on to a map or ordinance survey has old maps online. So you can actually go on and look where were they, where were they at that time? Yeah. And
0: yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. if you're looking at birth, marriage and death certificates, they would have had to sign them. Uh, and, and when they signed the informant, signed them, if they put an X, you can see that they didn't write. So yeah. then you know that any records you're looking at, they gave the information to somebody. Yeah, so that person could have transcribed it wrong. That person could have got the spelling wrong. So yes. just understand that not everything is as it sees. I think sometimes people say, but the certificate says this.
0: Yeah, and you've said and-
1: yeah, we all yeah. make. You know, the
0: English. other thing, yeah, the other thing I noticed was uh, the transition in language skills. That 1901, um, you can have they both speak Irish and English, and by 1911, suddenly the kids yeah. are only speaking English.
1: Yes, it, it, it it's it's quite remarkable to see and. You know, with census, we also know people sometimes want to put down what they think is the right answer. Yeah, the one they were giving the information to an a a person who was enumerating on on their behalf. 1911, they wrote it themselves. Yeah, maybe that could have. And, you know, each family can be different, but I'd be quite inquisitive when I'm looking at records.
0: Yeah, that's a good that's a good piece of advice. Just because it's written down, don't assume. There are all kinds of reasons why people write things down.
1: There are all reasons, uh, kinds of reasons, and, and you know, sometimes people. You know, I had one uh, great aunt, and her name was Lily. As far as everybody was concerned, she was never Lily on any official document. I've now yeah. categorically proved <laughs> it. <laughs> so gee, gee. And I'm trying to remember what her name was because she was yeah. known as Lily, but on her official document she had another name. And when I got the debt notice in the newspaper and was able to attach it to her debt record, I was going. Yeah,
0: this woman just did not like the name she was given. Never went with the name. There's another thing which, uh, and you could tell how accurate this is, is that very often the eldest born son was called after the mother's father and the eldest born, the first born daughter was called after the father's mother. Is that a reliable pattern?
1: It's not reliable, but it's certainly very useful. So okay. I would always be looking at to see. So there is a naming pattern that the Irish traditionally would have had. Some people followed it, some people didn't follow it. Uh, but I would look at that. Uh, I would look at, you know, there's church records are now online, the National Library right. put on Church records. Uh, and, and if you look at who are the witnesses, so because they might be uncles and aunts. Ah. Just trying to, who was the witnesses when your ancestor got married? yeah why, why would they have been witnessed there? Uh, one recent one i was doing is i was saying why do they get married in dublin like because they're from kerry and then i looked at the priest the priest was the brother ah, so
0: so,
1: the brother to marry them.
0: yeah
1: so, like just always be be that inquisitive and understand and uh, on my subscription sites i would also say look out for offers around saint patrick's weekend they often give free access to those sites so uh don't,
0: watch, don't get <laughs> tempted out. Yeah, Yeah, look, look before you leap. Yeah, I mean, obviously, technology has revolutionized this. What about the technology of DNA?
1: Uh, DNA, yeah, I've I've done my own DNA, and and it is very interesting. I I think DNA, there's still a long journey to go with us understanding. uh, Mm -hmm. But it is really helpful to us understand those migratory patterns. Uh, So if you come from Ireland, there has been a huge amount done on DNA. uh, And, you know, North America, all of North America, huge but if you if your ancestors are Asian or African I wouldn't be looking to DNA because they haven't done enough guys to understand it so this where you just again be a little bit skeptical and understand where Uh, but DNA has uncovered a a lot of information for people and and maybe stories that we need to talk about Uh, Mm -hmm. and we need to just name them as history and I think this is our overall approach to history is for me, is that we've tended to hide certain things and add stigma to it or add,
0: yeah. add
1: layers and suppress it rather than just speak the truth. Right. And that's the truth. But understand, I didn't live at that time. So oh. I don't know what choice I would have made. So yeah. to understand, you know, so with DNA for for a client, we, we've discovered, you know, who their, you know, parent is and who the, and, and I'm very strong you have an absolute right to your identity. You have a right yeah. to know who you are. You don't have a right to a relationship. That's something that's an additional piece, but you do have a right to know who you are. And I, I do think we have further to go to ensure that everybody gets that right. And yeah. DNA helps us with that, yeah. for people to understand, you know, was my parent Irish? Did, yeah. is, that where, is that where they came from?
0: Where, I'm glad you mentioned that, because there is a darker side to all of this, which we haven't mentioned, uh, and I think deserves to be mentioned, which is that in the very censorious, ultramontane Catholic Ireland that emerges after the famine, I mean, the church becomes hugely powerful after the famine, and into, you know, well into the first hundred years of independence, there is that dark side of, you know, um, unwanted births and children and illegitimacy and a huge degree of social shame. Um, and then of course the church and the religious institutions are in a way kind of tidying that tidying that away. Uh, and we know that very often the circumstances of those children were, were brutal, uh, even to the point of death in some instances. Um, and I think that's the point you're making is that if, you, if you're if you descended from somebody or you're one of them, you are entitled to know who you are, but not necessarily relationship. But there is that dark side to our own history which is interesting because you know we have this issue in in Canada obviously of of the yeah. Indian residential schools, but in a way we did that to ourselves back in Ireland with you know the, yeah. uh, the mother and babies homes, the, the Magdalen laundries, the industrial schools, and so on. Um, and because of as you say, people are li- well, people are living in a society in which they are the, there's these hugely powerful forces of of shame that. Influence their decisions, including presumably decisions to emigrate.
1: Yeah, I, I, without doubt. And I, I think we're, we're only beginning to see a light into that part of our history. I think we feel uh, that we understand it, but we don't fully understand it. But yeah, absolutely. You know, the church played a role, the state played a role. Um, and and that's part of me wonders. Are, why we continue to nearly keep that cover on it, that we're nearly afraid yeah. of what we're going to see. But we do see the echoes. You know, I have many good colleagues in Canada and I see the echoes uh, with Canada. Obviously they're very different stories, but it is a story about the authority knowing best. Yeah. And authority saying this is what is best for children. This is what is best for the mothers. We're going to do this. We'll we'll take your baby away off you. It, it's a burden for you. And uh, my my own mother would say that when her her father died, uh, she was one of five children at that time, and her mother was pregnant with the sixth. Uh, and they 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 um, they were living in poverty. In fact, my mother grew up thinking she had relatives in Canada. Uh, but in fact, it was St. Vincent de Paul were giving them food parcels, but oh, the say yeah, it was... You're, yeah. you're these,
0: these, so that's the, the story being told is, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting up family, yeah.
1: Well, yeah. one aunt, this, this famous Aunt Lily actually suggested to my grandmother, why don't you put your children in an institution, keep the baby, and put the children in an institution. And, you know, this would have been 1940s Ireland. And my mum said her mother must have known because she never heard her mother swear until that day. And she, she kicked Lily out of the house for even suggesting that the children go in oh, yeah. to an institution and then equally on my father's side his parents died when he was young and uh, he says uh, uh, an aunt actually a great aunt she took over looking after the children uh, phenomenally uh, she took a demotion in the civil servants uh, to go and move back to Cork and look after these children six children also in their family but my uncle, uh, my, my dad's younger brother, says that when she was with the six children, she was stigmatized because she was treated as a lone woman with oh, yeah. six children, even though she was an aunt, yeah. given up you know, a, a career to go and look after. So th- there are people who are in society uh, and equally I've met those who... You know, we're in mother and baby homes Uh, I, you know, one story that will stay with me, Eamon, is one woman, she was 10 years married. She'd had a few children with her husband and she decided now is the time to tell my husband I was in one of these homes. Right. He, he left her. He left. Oh, her. no. He could oh. not handle the stigma and 10 years married. And ten. you know, what I mean, so.
0: Oh, I, I, yeah. You know, I, I we don't
1: realize the impact. And, and you know, so that's where we feel very privileged. And that's why I feel I have a role to play in helping them uncover those stories and yeah. understanding who they are. Um, yeah. And it's not our right to add to to that stigma and, and shame that they're carrying. Yeah. It. We do shame really well.
0: No, we do. And it's a hugely powerful force, which is actually quite deep in our history. I mean, the whole Brehon Laws, yeah. Um, which dominated Gaelic Irish society were all tort laws, but they were enforced through yeah. basically social shame because we didn't have a centralised criminal system. So it actually is quite deep in our in our DNA. It's not just about our cultural DNA. It's not just about the Catholic Church. Yeah. But I mean, we all have the stories. I mean, my one of my my aunt. Uh, this is late nineteen fifties. comfortable middle class family. She gets pregnant. Snuck off to uh, to Spain uh, to give birth uh, to the child and give the child away immediately. Um, I have a first cousin floating yeah. around the world somewhere. I don't know who who he is, yeah. where he's gone. Um, and uh, unfortunately, she then contracted uh, TB and died in Spain. Um, but again, never never really talked about, you know. Uh, we only, we only yeah. learned about him six, seven years ago that this story was there, you know. And yeah. there was always this mystery as to why she had gone to Spain. And of course, it was staring us in the face, you know. But you're right. It's, but... I mean, I think it is that we, you and I have been privileged to live in a period of of change in Ireland that has been absolutely dramatic. I mean, the the society, I was born in 1960, so the society I grew up in is gone.
1: Yeah. Thanks to, and
0: I have to say thanks to people like you, because what you did for corporal punishment is very illustrative of change in Ireland. It takes heroes, very often women who force the issue of, you know, contraception, divorce, yeah. Um, um, and uh, you know, abortion and and freedom to choose. It's it's very brave women that stood forward and said, no, 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 we're not putting up with this this oppression and this and this. But it also explains presumably the broader pattern we see of so many women are emigrating throughout the throughout the centuries. They're going in vast numbers. I mean, by I mean, more than half in many cases, because yeah they don't have opportunities and they're living in these very repressive places, you know?
1: Yeah, and, and I suppose they're, they're looking to, to to be free and to be who they are. Yeah. And, you know, that journey that Ireland has done in the last 20 years, uh, as we uncovered our shameful past, you know, and then, you know, being appointed for me in 2011, and um, part of that was that we were going to have a referendum on children's rights, which we did, and we successfully put children's rights into the Irish constitution. We then saw you know our, our referendum you know we've had marriage equality and uh, the women's health or our abortion so if you had said to me 20 years ago that ireland would be able to deal with these issues even for my own i would have wondered no that's not the art yeah, you know, that's not yeah. What I know. and yes you know it's been such a positive change but it's brought people with us so yes. it's not a change that it's been oppositional piece and and that's where i think is really fascinating is as as we've learned more of our history and i do think the commemorations and what we've done has helped us in understanding our sense and who we are and Mm -hmm. understanding that life is complicated and our history is even more complicated has helped us realize that i can vote for something it doesn't mean i have to fully support it or fully i you know or i have to do it myself
0: society I, is going um, to be better if, if we live like that
1: and if we're more tolerant and we allow people to who, be who they are and that actually living in an ireland where everybody is different but because we're so different and you know i see the way we're in in the majority embracing new people coming into ireland
0: Absolutely.
1: it's vibrancy that we we don't have a singular interpretation of what being irish is other than that sense of inclusion, that sense of diversity yeah. uh,
0: shared culture,
1: shared culture. It's just such shared a great creativity. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I'm really proud to be Irish. And, and when I see what Ireland does around the world, you know, I, I see the role that we've played on Security Council. I see the role, you know, that our voices
0: keeping and Irish you, aid,
1: you, you, you know, we're a small country, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like all, all other countries have had a complicated history. Uh, We've had parts that we've talked about that, yeah, we we hang our heads, but instead of just hanging our heads, we're doing something now about it. We're actually saying any action we take from here forward, judge us on what we're doing, judge us on how we're doing it. Uh, And I think that's part of our own reconciliation with who we are, is to take those steps forward. Uh, And that's why those referendums that we had uh, have been so hugely powerful Uh, and so, you know, I, I. I don't think I'll ever have a memory like the night of the marriage equality referendum, you on the street in yeah. Dublin and and the just joyousness. Joy. It was like we were all in this lovely drunken haze now. Yes. And yeah. I, I don't think i would had a drink at that stage. It <laughs> but it felt like that was this like I nearly felt like what you were told about the 60s, all this, everybody going yeah. up and one another and just.
0: So it, just it was like, a moment because, as you say, that's the point. Everybody kind of agreed on it, you know. Um, but just talking back to the immigrant yeah. thing as well, that sense of community, I think and I'd like to give a, a, you know, as an ambassador, it's always a point of pride to see the degree to which Irish communities bind together to help each other. So, you know, well, like I can in, in, in um, Toronto and Vancouver, the GAA have been absolutely critical wherever immigrants have gone, you yeah. know, and I came across them in Korea, uh, as well as, as here. And of course, when I was in Washington and New York, you know, the sense of community. And very often, when they create the GA clubs or they do the immigrant welfare, we're not exclusive. You know, yeah. we'll embrace other people coming along. You know, and that's very yeah. much a part of it. I'd just like to end, Gillian, on, on a question, which is, which I think is a difficult one in one ways, But have you do you see a difference in the way Irish immigrant communities have evolved between, for example, England, Australia, Canada? We've touched on the differences between yeah. the United States and Canada a bit, but how would you kind of look at that at uh, uh, those patterns
1: and um, yeah I, they're definitely it, it is very different how the communities are and, and i do absolutely agree with your shout out to the gaa because it's given people a focal point and it gives people a point of connection and you know when i when i worked in brussels you know I, I didn't play gaa but it was a point where you could go and meet everybody and that was yeah. that was that was absolutely super about it If we look around the world, uh, it is very different. Like we we see in the UK so many, you know, during the famine and before went to Liverpool, Manchester, those those type of areas, Um, and and they lived in their communities and they had their Irish communities there, Um, but it was a very tough life they had. And many of them would have wanted to go to America or to Canada, but didn't have the funds. So they were really uh, struggling there. We see Australia has that... It also has a very complicated history because we had the convicts going uh, and, and we had children. You know, orphaned yeah. children were for that better life that they were going to have, but often were put into hardship and had really tough lives. So you'd, you'd very tough start to life. Uh, so if you survived in Australia, uh, it, it, you, know, you were
0: doing well, uh, you were
1: doing phenomenally well. Um, yeah. and, and then we we have those, and, and I I do find it fascinating how in America you had in in the USA you had that you know playing up of being Irish and and, and embracing being Irish, and then here in Canada it was the assimilation. H- how do I survive? How how do I adapt to this? Yeah. Uh, and so nearly it was like I'm an undercover Irish uh, for for many, and because there was different de- definitions. You know, we we see people will say. I come to canada and i saw my first orange order parade you know yeah. I've been ireland all my life never saw one uh, until i come to canada equally then on patrick's day you have the other side so it, it is interesting to see how different communities adapted and, and mm. how people, pe- people came into those and it is different with every country and that's why understanding the history of the country understanding where they landed why they landed there. You know, my my own ancestor who landed in Wisconsin, you know, who I said would, wouldn't have spoken English. Half that uh, county that she lived in spoke German uh, yeah. within five years of her being there. So it's also yeah. what other influences were coming in, where were migratory patrons a- a- and coming in mm-hmm. a- and having those different lives. But I'm hoping with initiatives like what you're doing with the 50 Irish Lives, that people start saying and understanding that being irish means many different things
0: yeah, absolutely
1: but hopefully it makes you feel included in who we are and mm-hmm. that you feel one of us as well as being one of of whoever you are and that's maybe an ending is is that uh, irish citizenship ceremony i i i think everybody should have to go to one uh, because they make that great uh, speech about you can still shout for your home team uh, and shout for ireland they're not mutually yeah. contradictory and yes. you, you don't have to choose a side when you're Irish, Yeah. because being Irish will always be part of who you are. Uh, but you can work and be part of the country of, of where you live, where you belong as well. And, and they don't contradict.
0: Absolutely. Gillian, it's been a real pleasure. I learned an awful lot. And uh, thanks so much for all your advice and guidance. We will post up some of those links that you mentioned. And uh, we'll be welcoming you to Ottawa tomorrow. Look forward to seeing you. I'm
1: looking forward to meeting you in person. Thank you so
0: much. Thanks, Gillian. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.